0: the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present John Nichols, the Nation Magazine's National Affairs Correspondent, who examines the devolution of the Republican Party into a violent white supremacist threat to democracy. Amanda Marcotte, Senior Political Writer for Salon.com who discusses the Republican Party's bizarre explanation of why single women are to blame for their many midterm election losses, and the reading of a letter from U.S. political prisoner Leonard Peltier at the annual Thanksgiving Indigenous Day of Mourning event in Plymouth, Massachusetts. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's under-reported news stories.
1: Forty years after the U.S. launched the war on cocaine in Colombia, Gustavo Petro, the nation's newly elected and first leftist president, is pursuing a new strategy. The newly inaugurated leader who has called the war on drugs a categorical failure that has left a million Latin Americans dead seeks to focus on dialogue with farmers and help them substitute coca with legal crops. It's an ambitious policy, but many coca farmers are hopeful that Petro will succeed in finally overhauling the country's approach to drugs. Foreign Policy magazine reports that Petro's transition team has identified profitable crops that could replace coca in various parts of the country, such as oyster mushrooms, acai palm, and medical marijuana. Already, three bills have been introduced in Colombia's Congress that seek to legalize and regulate recreational marijuana, which stand a good chance of passing, now that the legislature is controlled by a pro-petrol majority. The government has recognized that a previous crop substitution program, part of the 2016 peace deal signed with the FARC rebels, was hindered by the fact that farmers who did not have titles to their land were prevented from participating in the program. Petro has also opened a debate about decriminalization. He has said that as long as cocaine is illegal in Colombia, it will continue to finance organized crime and provoke violence. Over the summer, President Biden signed a series of bills designed to upgrade industrial jobs, including the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act, which would build new semiconductor factories in the American Midwest. Illinois Governor J.P. Pritzker praised the legislation as giving a jump start to the electric vehicle industry by investing in car manufacturers like Ford, Lion Electric, and Rivian. However, critics warned that there were no guarantees that these new electric vehicle plants would employ union workers. According to the American Prospect, Ford has outsourced its battery production for its iconic F-150 truck to non-union factories. Electric vehicle startup Rivian, owned in part by Amazon, has been plagued by workplace injuries and labor violations. And Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul exposed a scheme by Rivian to renovate its downstate plant with workers brought in from Mexico who were cheated out of overtime pay. It appears that the big three automakers are using federal funding and the transition to electric cars as an opportunity to hire a nominally unionized but lower tier of workers, or to skip unions at new factories altogether. As the state invests billions of dollars in the next generation of clean energy companies, Democrats selling green industrial policy are not following through on the promise they made to make green jobs good union jobs. They may only have a short window to get it right. Racially segregated communities, especially in cities, are exposed to high levels of toxic air pollution damaging to public health. A new study in the Nature Communications Journal found that residents in segregated neighborhoods are exposed to twice the total air pollution and ten times the rate of airborne toxic metals than more well-integrated communities. The lead researcher, Jack Kodros of Colorado State University, says people in segregated communities breathe in more particulate matter with higher concentrations of cancer-causing heavy metals. As a legacy of racism and redlining that leads to discriminatory housing and development practices, Communities of color often live near polluting factories, highways, and other sources of toxic pollution, which are linked to 5 to 10 percent of all annual premature deaths. The Washington Post reports that Aubrey Conner, the NAACP's Director of Environmental and Climate Justice, says new federal investment is critical in places that are suffering the most harm from toxic air pollution. Moreover, Connor insists communities of color must be at the center of creating new policies to address environmental injustices. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manso.
0: for the majority of Americans who believe in democracy. The results of the 2022 midterm election were greeted with relief, after many of the Republican Party's most extreme candidates in key battleground states lost. Donald Trump had handpicked and supported candidates for governor and secretaries of state in Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, with a plan that, if elected, these Trump loyalists would use the power of their office to manipulate and subvert election results in the 2024 election that the former president hoped to win. But while Democrats remain in control of the U.S. Senate, Republicans won a narrow majority in the House, where radical right-wing politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Jim Jordan, and Louie Gohmert are in position to pressure GOP leader Kevin McCarthy to accede to their list of extremist demands. Donald Trump's recent dinner with anti-Semitic rapper Kanye West and white supremacist and Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes, with little condemnation from GOP politicians, illustrates how today's Republican Party has, by its actions, attempted to normalize racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny, homophobia, and political violence. Your reporter spoke with John Nichols. The Nation magazine's national affairs correspondent and author who examines the devolution of the Republican Party into a violent white supremacist threat to democracy.
2: What I tried to do during the 2022 campaign was to carry two notebooks, Uh, one, you know, doing the interviews and covering the things that were happening on particular days and particular weeks you know, covering races and primaries and general elections, and et cetera. But keeping in a second notebook where I was kind of observing the pattern of the year and the pattern particularly of the Republican party, and that that formed the the basis for this big piece that's in the nation this week. Um, and And I was particularly interested in the the question of whether the Republican Party was simply continuing on a track that it had been on. And I've covered the Republican Party for decades, so, you know, and, and studied its history for a very long time, or whether something big had changed. And I came to the conclusion that something major changed over the last two years uh, following Trump's defeat in 2020 and his refusal to accept that defeat and everything that played out from that, you know, leading up to the violence at the Capitol, ultimately the, uh, the impeachment efforts and the refusal of the Republican Party to hold Trump and his inner circle to account for what happened in the aftermath of the 2020 election. And and from there began uh, a shifting of the Republican Party to another place, to a place that would be dramatically unfamiliar to uh, even many of the most conservative people that that we know in the history of the party, to Ronald Reagan, to uh, the Bushes, to Dick Cheney. Uh, and, and the argument I made is that at a certain point, uh, over the last two years and it, you know, different, different aspects of this at different times, but at certain points over the last couple of years, the Republican party, as we see it now, sort of cut its ties to its past and cut its ties to any sense of responsibility or conscience. And so what you saw is Republican leaders who were comfortable, uh, inviting Victor Orban from Hungary. To you know, speak at events and celebrating him, uh, celebrating the rise of the neo-fascists in Italy, uh, and then domestically, uh, adopting a win at any cost approach to politics that uh, took refused to to bend even when there were incredible revelations about their candidates, revelations that clearly showed. Uh, that their candidates were not, you know, some candidates, like I say, Herschel Walker in Georgia, uh, were not prepared to seek public office. And and then even once they did seek office, exposed as as people who were, you know, hypocritical as regards the ba- what were supposed to be the basic premises of the party.
0: Illustrating this point, I think very aptly, is Trump's recent meeting with anti-Semitic rapper Kanye West and racist Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes, and— That, for many, confirmed the label of white supremacist and neo-fascism within the Republican Party has been normalized. But it wasn't the meeting itself, actually, because I don't think we are much surprised by anything Donald Trump does these days. But it was the lack of any criticism about that meeting from a majority of Republican Mm -hmm. politicians.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: There's this sort of line that, okay, well, now we've reached the breaking point and Republicans are really going to move beyond Trump. Well, this latest incident with this dinner uh, confirms my belief that, no, they haven't moved beyond Trump at all. (laughs) They're still afraid of him. They're afraid of offending him. They're afraid of offending his supporters. Uh, And if anything, if there is movement from Trump uh, on the part of at least some members of the party, it isn't away from Trump. It's toward a deeper Trumpism or toward a more extreme version uh, that does go beyond Trump himself. Uh, toward uh, the embrace of a Victor Orban or a Maloney from Italy or someone like that. You know, it's, it's, there's something going on within the Republican Party, I would argue at this point, that is very unhealthy for the Republican Party. Right? It, it does have within it the seeds of the party's own defeat, um, but it's also unhealthy for the broader political process because if you've got a political party that is going to such extremes, With a win at any cost mentality that is by its nature going to disrupt the electoral processes of the country. And thus, the, the extremism, the growing extremism of the Republican Party promotes a disrupted and perhaps even in some cases dysfunctional political process of the country.
0: That was John Nichols, The Nation Magazine's national affairs correspondent and author. Find a link to his recent article titled the disturbing world of the new GOP, and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After the big red wave of Republican Party midterm election victories failed to materialize, exit polls found that key issues which brought out a near record number of voters included strong opposition to the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling that eliminated federal protection for women's reproductive rights, widespread concern about the Republican Party's threat to democracy, and the pledge by some candidates to subvert future election results if GOP candidates didn't win. Of the more than 370 GOP candidates who denied or questioned the 2020 election results that ran for the U.S. Senate, House, and statewide office in 2022, Alarmingly, 174 of those candidates won their races. As Amanda Marcotte, senior political writer for Salon.com, explained in a recent column, Republicans, by and large, haven't reflected on why their party has lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections, or why the GOP has consistently lost ground since Donald Trump won the White House in 2016. Instead, Marcotte writes the right is looking outward for someone besides themselves to blame. And they've landed on a favorite scapegoat, single women. Your reporter spoke with Marcotte about how and why Republicans are blaming single women for their electoral losses and putting forward bizarre conspiracy theories, such as Democrats are brainwashing hapless, unfortunate women who don't have husbands to make their decisions for them.
4: Well, I want to start by saying... Do not marginalize this. Do not assume this is just the fringes of the right. This is Fox News. This is the mainstream right-wing talking point. And it started right after the election. Jesse Waters on Fox News in this kind of pseudo-smirking segment said that the problem is that single women um, need a man to tell them how to vote, basically, and that it's time to get them all married up so that they start voting for Republicans. That talking point got echoed throughout the entirety of right-wing media, the Federalists, the Babylon Bee. You know, no Republican politicians came right out and said it, but at least Josh Hawley, a senator from Missouri, was retweeting people that were implying it. But across the board, the argument was, functionally, that single women can't be trusted with the vote because they don't know how to vote without a husband to sort of tell them how to vote. And that's why single women voted for Democrats. Another variation of it was that they were somehow bribed <laughs> with uh human rights, like the right to choose and That's a kind of talking point you see a lot of the time a lot of time on Republican side whenever people vote for Democrats because they like democratic policies. the Democrats are accused of buying them off as if it's somehow foul play to give the voters what they want in exchange for their vote but that's basically the talking point: was because single women voted for Democrats and the majority of married women voted for Republicans, that must mean that women need men in their lives to control their vote.
0: There's an exit poll stat for for many years now that that I find kind of disturbing, and that is white women by and large vote for Republicans and have so for for many years now, even in the era of Donald Trump, but I think in this midterm election. From the exit polls, it said uh, by an 8% margin, white women had voted for Republican candidates in 2022. Does that somehow dovetail with uh, the idea that these Republican commentators are, are correct in assuming that at least white women who are married are voting like their husbands who uh, have you know, long supported Republican candidates?
4: Yeah, that's part of the reason that this kind of talking point is a little bit misleading. Like nobody is just one identity and, and it you can see this desire to reduce women to single or married, like define them solely by their husbands. But there's a lot of differences between single women and married women <laughs> as groups anyway, like Single women tend to be younger than married women on average. Single women tend to be more racially diverse than married women on average. It's not like you get a single woman married and she suddenly becomes a Republican, right? No more than you get a single woman married and she suddenly becomes white. <laughs> and and the, a huge difference, too, is that college-educated women of all races uh, vote for Democrats more than working-class women. But especially, you know, white college educated women, I do believe, voted for Democrats this time. So you can kind of slice this up and you begin to realize it's really complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say that when you see these kind of racial categories, yeah, white women, just like white men, vote their racial privilege. Um, There's also a lot of age in this. The younger you go in this country, the more racially diverse it gets, but also the more likely it is that white women are to be Democrats. It becomes complicated, and I think that one of the problems is in our sort of Twitter age, we want to overgeneralize all the time instead of think about, like, how women, just like men, have all these kind of cross identities that they're voting on. They have all these sort of pressures in their life that – these cross pressures. Like, a married woman in her 50s might be more interested in making her husband happy than voting for reproductive rights she doesn't need anymore,
0: Mm.
4: for instance, you know?
0: Yeah, that's sobering, isn't it? I, I did want to ask you about young people, too, because some of these uh, right-wing commentators and politicians are also blaming young people and their you know, really heavily weighted vote for Democrats this time around, and, and in recent years as well. But I think I heard some commentators talk about the need to raise the voting age from, <laughs> eight, from 18 to 21 to solve this problem for Republicans. And this is, of course is a pattern of behavior you see on the right where voter suppression, gerrymandering, raising the voting age, or taking away the vote from single women (laughs) is their solution to win office. It's just crazy.
4: Yeah. And this is what I mean when I say that a lot of Republicans vote for Trump because they agree with him that democracy is bad. And you see it in this rhetoric. They over and over, they just, Describe entire swaths of people as incapable of self determination, of of making their own choices in the voting booth.
0: That was Amanda Marcotte, senior politics writer with Salon.com and author. Find a link to Amanda's recent article titled, Why Did Single Women Vote for Democrats? Republicans Have an Asinine Theory and Related Commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.com. American Indian Movement activist Leonard Peltier Has been in prison for more than 40 years, serving two consecutive life sentences for the murder of two FBI agents killed on South Dakota's Pine Ridge Lakota Indian Reservation in 1975. His extradition from Canada and his trial in the U.S. were rife with violations, including perjury by witnesses and the withholding of crucial evidence that proved the bullets that killed the agents didn't come from Peltier's gun. In the years since Peltier has been incarcerated, a retired appellate judge, who had been involved in his case, called for a new trial. In 2017, a former U.S. attorney whose office prosecuted Peltier wrote to President Obama supporting Peltier's bid for clemency, maintaining that no one knows who killed the two FBI agents. Peltier, now 78, is serving time at a federal prison in Florida, and is in poor health. And his new attorney and defense committee continue working for his release. Every year on Thanksgiving Day, the United American Indians of New England hold a day of mourning at Plymouth, Massachusetts. And every year that he's been in prison, Leonard Peltier sends a letter to mark the occasion. For decades, the letter was read by Dr. Herbert Waters, Jr., of the Wampanoag Nation. This year Peltier's letter was read by his grandson and namesake Herbie Waters, a student at Boston University.
3: Greetings my relatives, friends, loved ones and supporters. First, I want to say how deeply grateful I am that you would want to hear what I have to say. It's an honor to be with you in spirit, though I am far away. Being my age, and having spent these many years in prison, plays on your heart to the nth degree. I am here because I wanted to make a difference for our people, and I want to encourage others to do the same. My heart has not changed, and my intentions have not changed. The love and faith I have in our future generation has not changed. All the world now faces the same challenges that our people foretold regarding climate damage being caused by people who take more than they need. Dismissing the teachings of our fathers and the knowledge of countless generations living upon the earth in harmony. I may sound a bit dramatic and sensitive, but after all these years and the 78 journeys around the sun, I often feel and think that I should speak my mind and heart to whomever I can, whenever I can. Because at my age, you never know if you are going to live another 20 years or 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Our people have been through a lot. Generations have been imprisoned, beaten, murdered, dispossessed of our lands. And they fought so we might live. We are proud of our ancestors. I have tried to make the best of my time upon the earth in my given circumstances. To say the least, this has not been an enjoyable life journey, but I am proud to have been given a chance to stand for our people. I encourage you to do the same. I'm not a speaker, but I have spoken. I am not a leader, but I have led. Having said this, knowing what I know now, feeling what I've felt, seeing what I've seen and hearing what I've heard, I would do it all over again. For, as our ancestors loved the future for us, I love all people who have walked upon this earth. I recognize her as the greatest manifestation of the Creator and she should be recognized as such. On this day of mourning, I encourage you, with a hopeful heart, to continue to gather and have ceremony in remembrance of all our people, especially those who have given their lives so that we might live. Each of you has within you the potential to make a difference in the world. Each one of you has the opportunity and ability to do one act of kindness to someone in need and one act to make the earth a better place for all life. I, with the help of others, have started a food forest movement. We encourage all people throughout the earth to plant at least one fruit-bearing tree so that all the animals and all creatures of the earth will have healthier food, better air and cleaner water. Forgive me if I have said too much or too little. Time in this place is often irrelevant to the task at hand. May the Crater bless you, your families, and all our peoples of like mind. Peace, love, and blessings, in the spirit of Crazy Horse, Daksha Leonard Peltier. That was
0: Herbie Waters reading U.S. political prisoner Leonard Peltier's letter to people gathered at the 2022 Day of Mourning event in Plymouth, Massachusetts. This segment was produced by Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus. Learn more about Peltier's case by visiting our Between the Lines website at (laughs) btlonline.org. and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOZW in Knoxville, Tennessee, WXDR in New Orleans, Louisiana, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.